Welcome to this week Renewals Conversations with Dr. Tom Skovholt, who's a doctor in, in psychology. I have the joy and pleasure to know Dr. Tom for years because I taught at Hellenic College Holy Cross from his book, The Resilient Practitioner. And I came through this book accidentally and I was like, what happened? We should learn about this in medical school, in mental health. It's such a foundational book. And I was right. Actually, this book, The Resilient Practitioner by Dr. Tom, has been listed as one of the top three counseling books for those entering in the field. And the other two are Men's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl and On Becoming a Person by Carl Rogers. So it's a really foundational book. And I've been on this mission to integrate his work as well as get to know him. So you can imagine my excitement and delight when Dr. Tom said yes to come. And I'm going to share a little bit about his resume and what he did. And you're going to hear him talk. We're going to have this conversation. But I think it's crucial to see the depth and the breadth of his life history and his professional work, both in as a practitioner and also in research. So Dr. Tom Skovhold, he earned his BA in St. Olaf College and his master in education and PhD at University of Missouri in counseling office in counseling psychology. He was a faculty member at the University of Florida for years and University of Minnesota for 42 years. And 12 years, he actually served as the director of the counseling program. And he actually taught many graduate students who now work in schools, in agency, private practice, and higher education. And he also taught university, in universities like Turkey and Singapore. He does hold right now uh, the designation of Distinguished Professor Emeritus. And his area of research and clinical expertise includes resilience, burnout prevention, clinical supervision, mastery and expertise in helping professionals, education and healthcare and the counseling uh, process. And if you ask me, I think anyone in any helping profession should read this book. It's so foundational. And he has a long time research collaboration with Helgi Ronstadt at the University of Oslo. And he had many, many books. This one that I just shared, it's one of 14 books. And he now is in the process of revising the Resilient Practitioner book. He's gonna have his fourth revision and is giving many, many presentations, over 300. And a little bit of his history and his story, his uh, licensed psychologist, I mentioned that, but also is a, was a Fulbright professor in counseling psychology and a fellow of the American Psychological Association, had lots of hours of expertise, more than 20,000 hours as a counselor and therapist, and he still practices as a licensed psychologist. He uh, holds a board certification with the American Board of Psychological Professional Association and has conducted 52 oral exams for the ABPP candidates, which means people who are trying to become board certified, he's been part of that process. So his breadth of experience and knowledge is extensive. He was including president of the American Board for Counseling Psychology and he's been recognized with numerous awards and honors and contribution, lifetime contribution for education and training, uh, recognition by Division 17, which is in counseling psychology, as well as International Section Lifetime Achievement Award from Division 17 of the American Psychological Associations. And many presentations on burnout prevention and practitioner resilience. 
in not only in the United States, but Israel, Singapore, Ireland, Norway. And on a personal note, he wants to share that his father grew up as a son of Norwegian immigrants. And him and Lisa have three stepchildren and four grandchildren. And he is such a joy and he's such a wonderful human being. And I'm so delighted to introduce him. So here's Dr. Tom. Welcome. Thank you so much, Dr. Tom, for being here today. I'm so excited to finally meet you. I know we've been connecting for years and I taught from your book and I'm a big fan of your work. So I'm thrilled that you're here today. And with any further ado, I want to just give it to you and just share with us a little bit about your vocation and your journey. I mean, why burnout? Why resilient practitioner? So please. Well, thank you for your kind comments and, and your, your work. Wonderful. So, yeah, it's uh, let's see. How does one summarize something like this? Uh, yeah, let's see. Well, I think be, being in the helping professions has just been the right thing for me. I, a lot of things I can't do or couldn't do, but um, I had two great parents, a father who's an engineer, my older brother, this is a birth order kind of thing, uh, older brother, Kind of went that direction. I went the mother's route, which was more helping people in the community. And so I, you know, I just and always have had good relationship with both of them um, over all the years that they were alive and um, really close to my mom. And so I, you know, I kind of just, when she was older in a nursing home, high school graduate, uh, I'd go visit her and she'd say, what'd you do today? And I'd talk about things at the university and practitioners and uh, clients and, you know, not specific information. And, and I said, I learned everything from you. And she looked at me and said, you did? And then I'd say, I kind of tell her because she had that caring uh, relational, mm -hmm. caring relationship skills. So the next day at the nursing home, you know, I'd come back and she'd say, what you do? And we do the same sequence. I learned it all from you. You did? <laughs> so that was, that was the beginning. Um, but I think it was just been, I um, was read a psychology book in high school in 1961, it's a long time ago. And I liked it so much, I never returned it. And so I asked my guidance counselor 10 years later, when I was, I think a faculty member, 20 years later, faculty member at the University of Minnesota, I said, now, is this a, was this a, a bad thing or a good thing? I, I stole my high, high school psychology book. And, you know, you want students to love something so much, they, they would do something like that. On the other hand, Mr. Palmer, the guidance counselor, I stole this book. What, what do you think? And he looked at me like, scratched his head and said, I, I, I don't know what to think. <laughs> but it was, um, so that was the beginning. And gradually, I just went into um, different versions of it. Um, Got an undergraduate degree in, in Minnesota at a college, Lutheran uh, College, and then went to lived in the south side of Chicago, worked in a psychiatric inpatient unit at the University of Chicago Hospital. And that was really a valuable thing. Uh, 1968 in, in my life, when the draft Vietnam, uh, working in psychiatry, taking some theology courses, taking a uh, doctoral courses or graduate courses in Chicago, University of Chicago. It's really intense. Um, but it, I think for myself and maybe other people, you have to answer two 
first questions, which is, am I any good at this? And I do, do I want to do it? And, yes. and so, you know, if you can't, you're no good at it. Any, either one of those is a negative. Hopefully you don't do it. So uh, I got enough good clinical supervision and, you know, clinical supervision is in my research and other people uh, is so important, especially for beginning practitioners. So that was that. I went to the University of Missouri for a master's and doctorate. It's very, uh, it was just wonderful to kind of fall into the those two programs. Um, wonderful. University of New Hampshire for a semester, and it was nice to be in New England. And then back to Missouri, and I got a job at the University of Florida. Uh, and I've always been a practitioner as well as an academic. I, I think in some ways, I'm a practitioner that ended up as an academic there, you know, so, but then I've combined all those. So, um, and so the research mainly with my, my friend, Helgi Ronestad at the University of Oslo, he and I were classmates and we both had advisors who were vocational psychologists and we kind of, Oh, that sounds boring. But we eventually in 1985 started, started studying the, kind of career patterns of counselors and therapists. Oh, interesting, yeah. So that's when it started and we did a hundred qualitative interviews uh, over seven years and published the first book, which I always have liked the title, The Evolving Professional Self. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started, I think in terms, always being a practitioner has really been, I think, valuable because when you're a practitioner, you have data that you just don't have as a faculty member especially if you're doing empirical research, I think. Yes. If you have, you know, if you're doing some research and teaching students, they teach you all the, all these different parts. So I sometimes think uh, there are three parts of where we get our information. One is academic theories and research, which is the most acceptable. Personal life, which is just, <laughs> of course, what a laboratory. And uh, practitioner things, what you learn from your clients and doing work and trying things out that don't work, you know, how the, as much failure as success or somewhere in between, you know, and what is success? All, so anyway, we started this long project uh, together and started studying counselor and therapist, and then it kind of evolved to studying master therapist with one of my advisees for doctoral program. And then it gradually went into resilient practitioners and resilience. And I think I started that part partially because, I mean, in, in burnout prevention, it's just hard work. Uh, and there are just so many parts of it that are hard, gratifying, satisfying, but just hard. And Norman Garmacy is a University of Minnesota faculty member, and he was one of the people that did one of the first two studies on resilient children. The other one was done in you know, the island of Kauai uh, by Emmy Werner and other people. And actually, I went there a few years ago and, and traced down, tracked down, I should say, one of the children, the, the son of Ruth Smith, who was one of the first researchers. Uh, they investigated. So all the children born in 1955 on the island of Hawaii. And, and that's where the first resilience study came from. And nobody used that word at the beginning. They were just looking for problems. And then some kids were seemed to be doing well. So everybody got excited about how can you do well coming out of adversity. 
And anyway, so then I started with, I think some doctoral students, one especially that uh, Jin Ming Hao, who's uh, originally from Taiwan, but now then he was in the counseling center at Johns Hopkins. He did a wonderful dissertation a few years ago on highly resilient therapists. So, um, and then I kind of gradually got in, into giving presentations in this book um, that you kindly talked about. Um, I just started. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, I the just resilient started. practitioner. Yeah, nice. Um, so it's actually a compliment. You know, I'm from a from a, the Nordic Lutheran tradition where you're supposed to be modest. So I, it's a little hard to say this, but uh, Wake Forest University said that um, uh, logotherapy or um, hmm, yeah, I'm blocking out a name of that. <laughs> it's like, uh, right, right, right. Through discussion, the, yes. Yeah, the, the uh, author of that, that book and Carl Rogers and my book are the three most important books for beginning practitioners. Mm -hmm. A Man's Search yes. for Meaning. Uh, yes, yes, Frankel. Yeah. Frankel and Carl Rogers in my book are the three most important for beginning practitioners. So I started by saying, I, don't, I shouldn't say this because I'm from the modest Lutheran tradition and it's probably not true, but it's, I've had nice res responses because I've tried to write kind of from a practitioner viewpoint of this is hard and how do we manage? Exactly. And if you're listening or watching this, the Resilient Practitioner book um, is it's a foundational book. I actually um, I was sharing earlier when I was teaching at Hellenic College Holy Cross, I started this course that was for college, but also got the approval as a master course. So it was cross uh, um, the degrees. And I found your book by accident. And I'm like, why are we not taught about this? Why did would no one shared about this book? Because I found it so foundational. So for me, Burning Out Twice, your book, Internal Family Systems, and my faith is what really brought this all together for me. And I was struck because you talk about the cycle of caring, the four steps in the cycle of caring. And for me, the light bulb went on like, oh my goodness, in spiritual care, that's what they use as well. You know, how do we prepare for um, in interactions with people? How do we separate afterwards in yeah. the Christian faith tradition? You know, you go to sometimes I go to services in our Orthodox Christian faith at the end, you know, let out all your cares out. We, we talk this, but it's not embedded also in our professional life. So I was so grateful for, for your work. And really, I, I integrated so much and talk so much about it in, in the courses that I teach. So you're saying that through, you started with the research, right? And I love what you said about there are three areas of learning, and I think if you're a listener, this is so cool, right? There's academic, but it's not enough. Yep, Our yep. personal experience, but it's not enough. But we also have the practitioner. Yep, and the yep. three combination, it's like a gold mine. Right. No, I think that's true. I love it. The gold mine. I think it is. And, you know, we, we tell ask people when they're more experienced, what's your theoretical orientation? And my feeling is we we all our theoretic orientation is is asking Picasso what's your theoretic orientation? Well, you know it's Picasso. So people individually uniquely combine these, and it's a little embarrassing. You're supposed to be cognitive behavioral or psychodynamic, and that's maybe all true. But it's this 
the gold mine of the integration that's really i think what makes the practitioner the way they are, they are and that isn't talked about too much so um you know it's took me a while to i don't know if it's too much courage in our field the people that are courageous are those young ukrainian boys at the front lines but the it's um and the young russian boys i i, I one of my things and worries and things about it is young men kill young men and that's a, that's a whole different topic but i yes yes i've worried and thought about that worked with a lot of young young males in, in counseling so anyway um so i think um just the combination of these kind of things in unique ways is not really courageous but to be able to talk a little bit older when i'm more you know tenured associate professor when i became a full professor i said what are you know the idea is to do something useful or push yourself and it doesn't matter what people say it doesn't matter what your pay raise is it doesn't matter if you're doing qualitative studies when they don't want qualitative studies do what you think is valuable and so yes. that really has helped me a lot is yes. to just speak in some of these the books or some of the stuff in, in that book and and other things people have responded to because they're saying well you're talking about something that I, that I felt and known like you talked about the spiritual care um i met an oncologist once it was with a friend who is going to uh, talk to this physician and um, actually had this physician had treated her husband for stage four lung cancer and that's what he specialized in and i thought his job is to keep people alive but actually most of his patients die so how do you do your work and, yes. and that's where i originally got the cycle carrying or one of them i thought he gets involved you know makes the connection empathic attachment stays involved, stays involved, uses ability, says goodbye in this profound way, and then has some kind of recovery process related to being able to say, be involved again. You know, it's this, this I think re-engagement is the thing that we, you have to be able to keep re-engaging with a new person. And um, we don't talk about endings very much. The way you, I love the way you talk about the church, which is they, they there's an ending, you know, and so yes, yes, yeah. yeah. And so I, really, I really loved your ideas because, in a certain sense, and I, I actually talked on in the previous episode about this. Many times we think of self care as a project. Yes, it's like yes. a one-time thing because we live in a culture where there's so many projects we have to deal with. Right. But self-care is in a certain way like diet. We don't just take care of our healthy eating habits just once in a while as a project. Right. Yeah, it's right. an ongoing process. And that's, you know, taking your ideas and yeah. integrating, I really took it to the, how do we do this on a daily basis? How do we prepare for morning for this process of giving? How do we stay in flow and use some of the flow research and whatever we know from different practices? Yeah, right. At the end yeah. of the day, how do we separate? And then in the evening, yeah. how do we reconnect with our higher self? And yeah. I feel like this is such opening. Uh, your book is opening this integration because you really touch on so many models. You really touch on so many ways of integrating 
And the other thing that I was touched by was that you make a distinction between what's external conditions for any beginning practitioner and what is internal. Because what do, what do we do when we get tired? We think, oh, maybe it's my fault. Yeah. As opposed to, no, this is a common situation for anyone on this journey. Right, right. No, I think it is. And one of the, if I get to these uh, nine ideas, one of the things it's burnout prevention is both an individual responsibility, but it also an agency or uh, institution or cultural responsibility too. So uh, sometimes, you know, people talk about, I just have to do more. What's wrong with me? But it's, it's more, more than that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, good. What are the other points that you have? Well, let me see. I go through my points. <laughs> Please. You have lots of gems and nuggets. I would love to hear from your wisdom. I hope this doesn't sound too stifling, uh, but uh, here's the, top, the title of that I had. This was from APA Convention, American Psychological Association. It was, it was in Minneapolis uh, this August. I knew it should have come to our city, but this year. So I was at a round table. And uh, I presented these ideas, nine ideas after many years of working on practitioner development and resilience. Um, but at first, I'm not sure how much time we have, but I started with something I quoted, which is I called the problem. Here we go. The nurse repeatedly swallows a fragment of the trauma, like a nurse who is looking after infectious patient putting her at risk of fueling them too. In taking in even a small part of tragedy and grief and loneliness and sadness on a daily basis over a career as dangerous and as exhausting. Hmm. This is from a woman named Christy Watson and she has a book, the wonderful title called The Language of Kindness, A Nurse's Story. And so I say that this is the problem. This is our work. Yes. How do you do this? If it wasn't difficult, then we wouldn't be talking about it. So, so then I talked about the first resilience studies in Hawaii, starting uh, with the children, all, all children born in 1955. And, uh, and then the other one is pharmacy here at University of Minnesota. Now the nine ideas. And the first one is number one. There are many contradictory messages about both practitioner self-care and being resilient and performing at a high level. Many contradictory messages. We all have to work through the contradictory message. Uh, there is no rose garden. In other words, there's no simple solution. The way you said self-care is not just, you know, having a bubble bath one day and you're good, you know, <laughs> like that. <laughs> Or little cars that say, you know, affirmations. You know, they could be okay, but, you know, really. Uh, practice, number two, practitioner resilience is both an individual responsibility and an organizational responsibility. Um, Can't agree with you more. Yeah, but thank you. Christine Mashlock at the University of California, Berkeley, who is the Mashlock Burnout Inventory. She really talks about the organizational issues and tries to create organizations and you know, other people talk a lot about individual things. Um, three, all practitioners struggle at different times because people are complicated. The key is to reflect on the struggles and learn. Being open with colleagues is important. Everybody has, quote, the imposter syndrome at times. Maybe, maybe more. 
getting prejudiced. Yeah. Just for a minute, I think this is so key because from inside, we don't realize that people that come to us, they come with problems. Other professions, people, maybe they come when they're happy, but not in this, you know, therapists, counselors, pastors, any caregiver, if yeah. they don't come and say, oh, I'm so great, let's let's have a chat. So we're barraging, we're always receiving all this energy and the negative energy of trouble, emotion. So it was very enlightening hearing your book about that, yeah. Oh, that's really, it's well said. You know, at times I kid about starting, I was gonna, I was gonna start a joy clinic. And then people will come when they're really happy. Then I ask the people and administrators, I say, how am I going to build this? You know, what's, how we, where's the medical code for this? You know, just kidding with them. And then, and then I say, ice cream store or a trophy shop is another one. If you go and buy a trophy for somebody, everybody's happy. They're going to get a trophy. Uh, ice cream, most people like ice cream, especially if it's hot. But the joy clinic seems to be the best idea. But you're right, there's no, there would be no business because that's not what we do. So it's, uh, yeah. Okay, um, it's not, it really relates to number four here, which is uh, resilient practitioners feel honored to stand quietly near the client's intense distress and to know this helps reduce the other's existential loneliness and increases hope. So, I mean, it's, it's really a core value. If you know, Some people say, why would you want to do that work? Work with all, all these depressed people. But it's, you know, it's the reverse of it. The opposite, isn't it? Which is the, the great honor. And then the value of doing something that's really walking into this. Really, all these things, which you, words you used, or we could use it, sadness, distress, demoralization to use Jerome Frank's word from the past. Absolutely. Uh, and I, if I could expand this for, please. Um, yeah, whatever. Yeah. The people that uh, we're serving is any the people that are giving, they have a heart for giving. They want to help others in many ways, right? It could be clinicians or educators or entrepreneurs or caregivers, parents. And I think you touched on something so important. It is an honor. It is an honor to give. It is an honor to help others. And many times the message is, why do you want to keep on giving? You know, I just do whatever to, to separate and not do that. But it is, it is an honor. It is a life mission. Right. It's an honor. And also maybe learning how to also be comfortable within the, within the distress or to be to, to sadness or that's being quiet. I know it's it's not everything, but being quietly present right there is is also just difficult, but can be difficult, but it is also part of the honor. And it matters to be heard by the other. With this idea that most people are afraid if somebody feels suicidal, they say they are, don't talk about it. Where the, the reverse is for us is to kind of be able to talk about it so the person feels heard. Even though for practitioners, I mean, you know, it's distressful when somebody's talking about, you know, I've had people talk about it. wanting to figure out how to use a rope, you know, to hang themselves or how to uh, drive their car into a bridge, you know, so all this kind of stuff. And 
and you have to kind of listen to it, make assessments about it, but it's not easy, but. Um, right, and especially if you're a clinician, that's the job of a clinician. Obviously, if you're not a clinician listening to this, ask for help, call 911, like don't try to figure this out on your own, you know. But, no, that's um, true. Yeah, as clinicians, good point, yeah. it's very difficult, absolutely. Yeah, let's see, so here's another one. What is success? You know, and I go, yeah, what is success? And, and I say, it's not defined by the uncontrollable, which is the client's outcome, even though we often use it. You know, it's, uh, that is their life. So how to, how to do your part of the equation or my part of the equation. And, and that's where I do that. I think of the cycle of caring. Of course, when people are, say they're less depressed or happier, you know, whatever, that's good. But the students learn a lot of things, they ever, you know, or all, whatever the uh, issue is. But basically, be able to do the cycle of caring well is a way of deciding whether I'm, I feel successful. It's, it's tricky because we have all these outcome measures to reduce symptoms and you think that's success and there's differences in practitioners and their ability but but i also think i when the students when i've had graduate students they they're so hard working to get to graduate school and they you know they get up in the morning they brush their teeth they get the clothes on they get their school early they do their homework they you know they're very uh, serious and motivated but then they take on the client's success or lack of it as their success or lack of it right and, you know, and then they feel so discouraged when the client won't do certain things. And, you know, they, yeah, that's understandable, but it's their life. So let's see what else I have here. Oh, here's a person I actually, a former student of mine, I talked about this uh, cycle pairing and, and he, he is a talented organizational psychologist, but now he volunteers in a capacity of helping people going through the dying process. And he has a ritual afterwards which is, it sounds a little different for people in our field, but um, he's about 50, 50 something, I think. So after the death, he travels 12 hours on his motorcycle, stays overnight and returns. Then phase one with the new family begins. So he's, he uses that as his own ritual, I mean, to, with the ending and being able to manage it so that he can begin again. If you can't end well, you can't begin, you know, that, which I think is important to talk about. I sometimes I, have used elementary, sorry, elementary teachers as a model because they, they have a nine months in the summer. It's maybe the only profession with a real vacation, even though sometimes they go to school and, but it's the fourth, phase of the cycle of caring because in the fall you have 31 fourth graders saying, Miss Rodriguez, Miss Ray, I'm my, name, my name is Jimmy, look at my shoes, you know, um, and, and the job of the teachers connect with all these kids and then all year and then they have the endings in the spring, which is the, the uh, so little parties and they have little, they go on picnics and then they close the doors and the teachers leave and then the idea is in August, hello, Miss Rodriguez, my name is Rita, I have a new dress. So his thing is he just goes on this long motorcycle ride. And uh, 
That's okay. right. Anyway, I think okay. it's so beautiful what you shared, Dr. Tom, because I've actually been a teacher in middle school and high school for several oh, yeah, years. Yeah. And oh. I can relate to what you're saying. Yeah. Totally. Oh, yeah. Good. And what I love about it is this idea, and you, you bring that forth in the book, yeah. that the cycle could be for the year. Yeah. The cycle could be also for working with a patient from the beginning right. to the end. But the cycle can be also for the day. Yeah. And the cycle can get shorter for the interaction. And this idea that we can think of these cycles, and you also brought this idea of the rituals, separating rituals. I've heard from other areas about that, and I think it's so amazing to really think of some goodbye rituals, so to speak. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then also people sometimes go and you know, just between clients or between uh, maybe class hours as a teacher. I don't know. You probably have no time, but you, can you go to the bathroom? Can you walk down the hall? Can you say hi to the teacher in the next room? Can you do something and then come back and boom, there you go. So the next, uh, <laughs> I got a, three, a few more and then. That's great. Maybe I just do them and then be done. Uh, next one is number six, because we must fight against that which destroys our ability to help. And then we have these words that we never had when I started, which is Freudenberger's first article on burnout was 1974. So the words of we've heard now, we know, burnout, emotional depletion, which is really a, a good one. I think people come home to their families after working and they got nothing. And yet, <laughs> you know, that's a big problem. But emotional depletion, compassion fatigue started with. Um, no, that's not, I don't know. Well, I guess Figley started with that. Vicarious trauma, traumatization. Uh, perfectionism is a little different, but it really can get in here. You know, I mean, you want people to have high standards, but then you're working with your clients and, oh man. Uncertainty, it's a human condition. And the loneliness, I've been talking about this more lately, but the loneliness of one-way caring relationships. Yes. Because the profession is about their life, and that's the way it should be. But then it's not about our life. And um, actually, I just reviewed a book that you might find of interest. It's called, in about clergy. It's called clergy, clergy loneliness. And it's like... People like a minister in a congregation who have all these parishioners and they all come to the minister, but you can't really have friendships too much with your practitioners. So then how does the priest, the bishop, the, the minister manage that? But anyway, this is this is more about counseling practitioners, I'm thinking, or, or maybe teachers with their students, you know, it's just a lot of things. The loneliness of one-way care relationship. So those different things are really problems. We must fight against them and really actively kind of fight. (laughs) And I love what you said, because I mean, obviously there's confidentiality rules as well, right? We we cannot share all the victories and whatnot. And even if we're not counselor, I mean, sometimes educators or in, I mean, we don't don't go around and kind of boast about it. I love that you mentioned your Lutheran tradition yeah, yeah. Many givers, if they are, if in their faith, they might like, I don't want to just keep telling what I'm doing, but sometimes there are heroic moments and mm. it's hard not to be able to share. That is true. I think you're, that's a really good point. The heroic moments that are just as valuable 
is the people that do other jobs that go to the party and talk about it. And then you go and say, well, I'm, you might say I'm a psychotherapist and people then are scared of you or they wonder if you're analyzing them. And so it's more, and, and then you can't talk about your work, but there are heroic moments. I agree, you know, and some way learning how to be able to share some of it with somebody. And mainly that's, I guess, people that are in the field or, you know, indirectly with close people. But, you know, I think figuring out how to do that, maybe that's kind of a hidden skill that we don't talk about. How can you talk about your work, not violate confidentiality, but still be able to talk about it? That's right. It's, uh, it's hard to teach students about that. It's easier to say, don't say anything ever. <laughs> yes, yes. That's, those are great points, and I think you have a few more. Let's let's hear them. Yeah, That's pretty, pretty very awesome. Yeah. Uh, positive connections to others, to deep values, to learning the self. These are different parts of this research study. Just positive connections in one's life are really important for giving energy. And, you know, it can be to self and can be to values and spiritual life. And, but we talk especially about people. The positive connections with people uh, because we need so much positive energy to combat or meet all of the despair that comes in the room. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, next one is the work is full of ambiguity. <laughs> for for balancing the ambiguity of the work, like uh, I don't know, was I successful or not today? concrete hobbies I kind of like when people talk about I know a nursing uh, faculty member that uses a loom to weave and she gets in the flow and then she has she has a whole product and then she goes and teaches the students you know um, or collecting rocks in Minnesota cold Minnesota winters so you have cold winters too I have a counselor friend who collects rocks and she weighs them out all winter. She doesn't have to nurture them. They're all there in the spring. He, you know, do I have five white ones and three black ones and seven, you know, I mean, it's all concrete stuff. So, and it sounds uh, like they're concrete, but also very symbolic. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, symbolic too, yeah. And, um, I, you know, things like remodeling. I used to paint the rooms in my house and feel like, wow, I succeeded. You know, that's now green. Yes. It was blue. You know, <laughs> uh, rowing, running, all this, fixing up cars, whatever. You know, so I suppose cooking would be, you know, for different people. And then um, the last thing I'll say is that I've come to this idea that uh, a term that we got from one of the studies it's a paradoxical term, you know, like or maybe one or more, one or more famous paradoxical words would be bittersweet. You know, it just has a word, bittersweet. But this is called boundaried, boundaried generosity. So I love it. Yeah, you know, and so generosity is what our work is, right? But if you don't have boundaried boundaries, I, I, kind of a little bit more awkward but i like it boundary right and then how to do it up and down no children no time five children less time you know i mean you're dealing with an illness or your stock market's way down or you know whatever yeah. mm -hmm. um, three jobs or one job or you know so i think that 
the dynamic, I don't know how to describe it, but a dynamic term of boundary generosity. I, yeah. I think for myself, you know, I'm, I am doing this clients. I've got four grandchildren. I try to be close to, but there are two men I've met in the community. They're both really struggling in different ways and they wanted me to help them and read their book on after a guy was homeless for 20 years. And I just like, ah, I should do it. But, you know, I kind of like, when do you say yes? When do you say no? Yes. How much yes do you say? How much no do you say? And so it's agonizing, but if we don't, a chicken with no feathers doesn't look too good, you know? Mm -hmm. What's your guiding post, so to speak, to find that balance in a boundary generosity? I just love that. I love the way you brought the the polarities, like two extremes and finding that almost like a third way. How do you, any tips for the listener? Like how to find that inner guidance or however you conceptualize it? Well, one is to kind of really listen to yourself. And for me, I just say, listen to myself. And when I can't, it's hard. I mean, I guess it's a real thin barometer in a way, a thermometer or blood Mm -hmm. pressure cup or something that you just like, it's too much or too little feeling guilty if I don't do it, but then feel resentful if I do do it, you know? So then do I go to the funeral and stay for the lunch or do I leave because that's enough? Do I, you know, how much, how much to do? And then, so I I think to me, it's like, I wish I could be more clear about it, internal gauge about Mm -hmm. too much, too little. Uh, teeter totter. Other here's another term: other care, self care, yes. other care, you know, self care. So, I mean, if you just use that dynamic about you know, this all it's things yes, as a yes. kid, <laughs> go like that and like that. It's but so Absolutely. I balance beam. I think you know if I can't can't be present for people in my personal life, that's that's not good. I think what you shared is so important that inner guidance, and I want to link it back to something that you said that you are a practitioner, which implies that it's through practice that we're going to develop this inner guidance. It's not just doing it one way, constantly using generosity or giving or constantly doing boundaries, it's through practicing. And I love the balance that you said. And if you are going to, if you're a practitioner and you want to any giving profession and want to take this book at the end, you actually have, you walk us through how to think in terms of this balance of others versus our own uh, needs and regeneration. So you literally have also an assessment. How do I assess how much I'm giving, how much I'm Yeah, right, yeah, we do, yeah, yeah, right, (laughs) yeah. And I'm reminded one thing, I made a connection. I love what you said about bringing, using this language. Interestingly, in the Christian Orthodox faith, we have this uh, phrase around Lent and, and Easter, Pascha and the resurrection we call it the joyful sorrow. Mm, that's a good one. There we go through the sorrow, but yeah. it's joyful because we know there it's going to be good ending, that there's resurrection at the end. But it brings the bridge between the two, kind of like what you're sharing. Yeah, I love that term. You know, 
just in itself, but just these paradoxical language is just rich. It's richer, it's deeper, it's more inclusive. So, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. less is more, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, fences make good neighbors, you know. And, but this one, joyful sorrow, it's the emotional pieces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Nice. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, thank you. W- were you, was it anything else on your list? Or no, was that was the last piece. I, I, I had, yeah, those were the nine, nine different points. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing from your work. And I'm curious, what are you working right now? Like, what is your, is there anything that the audience could um, learn about you or any projects that you do? So we'll, and we'll put in underneath some links to some of your books and um, any, any other links that you want us. Yeah. Well, I'm doing, trying to finish the fourth edition of this book. So it's uh, okay. Uh, and that's, it's both enjoyable, and Michelle, who is the co-author, and I are doing it together. She's a former doctoral student and practitioner, and so she's she's and a mother, and you know, having a full life. So that's good to work with her. Um, yeah, so that's a it's a challenge in some ways because I've done done three editions. So then, do you have anything new? You know, and uh, and adding a few things new, but um, trying to work on that, trying to do my one day a week of practice, which I enjoy on, on, on Zoom or, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, from home, I guess we could say, <laughs> haven't been going in the office. And then a, occasional talks uh, using in PowerPoints. And I've given talks recently in Florida, in Norway, and California, but all from here, be partially because of the pandemic. I, this last Norway talk, I thought we were going to go, but because I've gone there before, but um, did it from home. So that's different, you know, have an audience for a lot of, a lot of people. But uh, I'm going to go to North Dakota, and um, I even have the accent when I talk about North Dakota um, in February and talk to the North Dakota Counselor Association. So that'll, that'll be good. I think it's the same thing and people can find it useful. And then my own personal life, you know, trying to do different things. Lisa and I have three children. She, her daughter, she has a Rachel and I have a Rachel. So we have two Rachels, but together we have, Amazing. We have three. Yeah, we have three children. And, and that's really wonderful. Uh, one of my children, David, lives... Uh, 40 yards away, and the other one, Rachel lives, my Rachel lives uh, 2,000 miles away. So I think the mean, the mean is about 1,000 miles. <laughs> and then I just was in New York watching my granddaughter play college volleyball mm-hmm. at a college there. And uh, yeah, so that was fun. We went together. And so trying to be, I, you know, what is the job of a, grandpa- a grandparent? And I, I think, oh, you know, it's hard to know. What is it? But uh, try to make go into the attachment literature, having making good, secure attachments, mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of you know I don't want to over psychologize it, but that's really kind of it. And I could say for one, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this too much, but it's kind of personal. But for you come and go in terms of how you're important to other people, or you know, and so one of them whose father kind of disappeared i'm the male presence secure male presence in her life that she's told me and you know it's really 
important. So to show up is a, one of my friends and who's also my age says, show up, you know, and show that's what we, we try to do. So that that's good. And I try to enjoy it too, you know, so we have fun, fun activities. Lisa and I have a good time together. Um, uh, I think financial issues, that's a whole different thing, but I try to be, I didn't get into this work to make money. On the other hand, I think it's really important to pay attention to the finances because if people don't make a lot of money in our field, then you, it's maybe more important to pay attention to financial issues. And not that you're going to get rich, but to, to try to, to manage things well. And that is both making some money and also trying to be frugal to some degree. So that's another self-care or whatever topic. So. Yeah, um, thank you for sharing that because that was kind of my next topic. Like, how do you live this? Everything oh, that you, yeah. in your profession and how do you apply it? So those are great gifts. And if you're in the audience, a grandparent or parent yeah. and we, you know, looking forward to be a grandparent, I love what you said about the main role is the attachment and being that yeah. stable figure. And I also appreciate your wisdom around, yes, work on finances to make them stable because right. that can bring a big stress in life. And obviously there are many people who are struggling financially, but uh, just because we want to be giving or sometimes people are Christians and then they think finances is something that we shouldn't think about when there's that stress that's involved in the family that depends on you, that is important that it should be. And I want to remind Christians, Christ was not just a spirit. He was also a human being. Um, mm-hmm. So taking care of our earthly vessels, so to speak, it's, it's essential. No, that's a good term. Yeah. No, that's, that's, yeah, I think that's good. I, I, I think an exercise, you know, I grew up as an athlete, so, and it was very really important to my dad. So I played a lot of sports growing up and then um, college, including college basketball. And, um, but then my knees weren't so good. So now I bike a lot. And so that's, you know, and I think it's, it's a, the, all the kind of research on the physical mm-hmm. benefits, the anxiety and depression benefits. I used to, I used to do a little experiment. I'd ride the bike to the University of Minnesota, work all day, well, then have a shower at the gym, work all day, uh, and then come home, and, and I'd compare it to days that I um, didn't do it, and I'd feel like, uh, let's see, what term did I use? Uh, ah, shucks, I forget. Well, a version of just how anxious and kind of distress, uh-huh. lower level of distress from just work, you know, and the days that I ride the bike, I just had a little bit more L- endorphins were a little higher I was a little happier you know and just from so that was a good experiment like it does really matter uh, at least for me in that sense and I so, love what you shared that that's a nice uh, renewal nugget that I didn't think of it but it's true if when we you do it in the morning the exercise yeah. it might actually have a much better trickle down effect through the day as opposed to yeah. doing it in the evening you know some people do it the other way around right. um, whatever yeah but it's just, i appreciate it's really it. yeah it's, yeah thank you but then how do you care for yourself when you're caring for others i mean there's a class there's a classic question in, in this this topic but 
just, uh, and, you know, I should write this article, but I really want to ride my bike. And you just have to, you know, and how much do you do? I was going to do more photography, but I just never got to it because I'm doing other things. So I don't know. My my life is just, um, I, I have always wanted to not, I've always wanted to like the counseling therapy and never get to a point where I hate the work or I hate the clients. I think the burnout, the burnout research really, you know, people getting the three indicators of Mashlock are, you just, you just are exhausted, which is understandable, but then you start disliking the people you're working with. And then kind of like, you don't even know if you're a, who you are anymore, that depersonalization. So I've really worked at not having that happen. And, when I was like in my thirties, I think I'd go on vacations a lot. It seemed like maybe because we didn't have a lot of money, we'd take camping and stuff. But uh, my dad said, you're always on vacation. <laughs> and I, I didn't think I was that much on vacation because I was going to school and all that. But I think it was kind of like, we need time off. I guess is a basic point. Absolutely. We need time off. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's almost like for me, I reached a point where like, I want to take mini vacations every day. That's how I think about it. Okay, because yeah, by no, the no. time vacation comes, who knows what's going to happen? Right. That's good. Yeah. No, I like the mini vacations. Yeah. Even when I do the bike ride, I, I end up at a little yesterday down by the Mississippi River. I rode for about an hour and ended up at this place. And, you know, they, I think I had... Uh, Oh God, some kind of puffy little things that probably aren't good for you, but it was like a little prize for for uh, you know for working out. So we gotta reward ourselves in different ways. Sometimes between here's a little secret between clients, sometimes I have one piece of chocolate. So mm-hmm. I run downstairs, have the chocolate, come back up, good to go. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, and what I love. What I love about what you share that, again, as a listener, which I think it's such an important kind of renewal nugget and and burnout, um, thinking about it. If you find yourself as a listener in a situation that you used to love and all of a sudden you don't, you feel no pleasure or you get even angry and frustrated, sometimes people think, well, maybe I need to change my job or my profession. And what you're saying is maybe not. Maybe this is just a sign of burnout. So yeah. this is a very important take-home message. Right, right. It's, oh it's, and then back to the individual responsibility for the person, but also, and it's harder to control this, but the organization, uh, their responsibility. I, I used to hate kind of, I don't know, hate's a little strong. I avoided being an administrator or a department chair, even though I was a director of training of a program for a long time. Um, because I didn't think I could be creative and do my work, but I, then lately I've thought, boy, if you're a department chair of a faculty and you have 33 faculty like my department did, your job is to take care of all those faculty and make sure that they are in a position where they're not burning out and they have a lot of vitality and then they can work with their students. That's a whole different way of thinking what the job is. So the, in a way the clients are, if you're maybe in a public school, the principal's clients are the teachers and right. the teacher's client, clients, not clients, but students are the students, you know? And so that um, 
So it is a two-way two thing, back to what you said, if you're really exhausted, don't change jobs, figure out how to have the mini vacations and lots of different parts. But it's just, I think that's serious, it's serious work to maintain resilience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also to be assertive and talk with the administration. I really love what you said. It's not just an individual responsibility, but it's also a system responsibility, the hospital, the school, the um, college, whatever that workplace is, the business to really ensure that well-being. And I think after COVID now, people are more in tune to this because yeah, I, I think it became more to the surface and many people now that don't even want to go to work in necessarily in some corporate jobs because of of yeah. seeing the difference yeah right that's true it seems like it's changed quite a bit yeah 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 seeing the light yeah so to say <laughs> yes yes yeah any other pieces of wisdom renewal nuggets so to speak from your experience dr mm. tom thank you do you have any other? Well, another another piece. I yeah, I was I didn't think I had any more, but I think that the, if we think about the helping professions or the mental health professions, I don't know how big to make the circle, but it's in psychology as a as a discipline. You know, there there are lots of different parts. Right. Um, it's it, this is people have never appreciated this field as much as they do now. I think in now in the American medical admission test, American medical admission test, they have a psychology component just to add it. So I don't know, it's symbolic, uh, you know, the whole thing, but I think it's just a more new recognition of the power of the helping professions, the, maybe the, the importance of, of spiritual guidance, of, of church, of social workers, of uh, all these marriage and family therapists, I mean, that there's, I think the excitement is people appreciate it more and have it's more valued. The Surgeon General yesterday uh, had a whole list, his whole thing is mental health and um, all kinds of things. Now, we could say it's because things are worse or because there's more recognition. I don't know, but I think that it's an exciting time to be starting in the helping fields like psychology or my field of counseling psychology. And there's, a, I think, more appreciation, recognition. I mean, you know, it used to be they had the state, big state mental hospitals and people would just go there and they had no medication and people were just scared of being crazy. And, and they said the shrinks are crazy. And, you know, and I think it's it's really better now, and so yeah, that's that's an ex exciting thing. Um, I think I could say to people on the street, you know, we say about mil military people, if they have, I'm in the army. Thank you for your service. You could say I'm a mental health practitioner. Thank you for your service. You know, yes. it's like we're kind of at that point. So that's pretty nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, that's just amazing. <laughs> wow. so that's a that's a last positive comment i mean not the last positive comment but the last comment which also is very positive <laughs> yes yes well thank you so much for today i so appreciate you being here and sharing all your wisdom oh it's so fun such a 
such a pleasure, you know, when I was a when I was a young boy, when the, my fourth grade teacher said, after she read my essay, said, see me for help because there were so many problems. She didn't know what the summer to even mention. But from there till now, and to be in this field and to be, have a conversation with you is uh, what, what, how lucky can a guy get? Mm, how so, lucky I am and the listeners to really learn from you. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Tom, for being here. I am so delighted. And I hope that as a listener, you take all the nuggets that he shared today and also that you share with others that might be in any giving professionals to really learn from him, from his wisdom. Also access this book, The Resilient Practitioner, which I always mention in my course, The Renewal in Action is like lesson one in my first module because it's so foundational. And with that, I thank you so much for being here and I wish you a wonderful week And until next time, I say goodbye for now.